I got it turned on now. If you are four years old to this... If you are four years old to the second grade, it is time to go to uh, Kids Club. You are excused. Well, let me begin by apologizing that at some point, if I sound like I'm five years old or 12 and going through puberty, um, I have been sick all weekend. My voice cracked several times uh, during worship, so hopefully I I don't enlighten you with the joys of my prepubescent voice again. Um, we started last week in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we opened up Ephesians 1. Our hope in walking through this book is to take a 10,000-foot view. Uh, we kind of talked a couple about it. There are lots of different ways in which you can go about a book of the Bible. Uh, I commented that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 168 sermons in the book of Ephesians. We're not going that direction uh, you could spend five years pouring through this book. There's, there's lots and lots and lots of ways to study a book of the Bible. We're kind of going at a high view level. We're wanting to take a really specific look at some of the specific and particular themes that come as, comes out and what God has declared to us through this book. So last week we opened it up. We looked at verses 1 through 14. Uh, and we considered what does it mean to be rooted in the gospel, what does it really mean to be rooted in Jesus Christ? The reality of the gospel and the reality of our understanding of the gospel means that we, we have an understanding of who we are in Jesus. And, and when we find our identity in Jesus, that's distinctively Christian. That to find our identity in anything else is an understanding that it is less than God would have for us. See, as men and women, it's so easy for us to find our identity in so many things. Be it as, as a student, you could find your identity in your grades or success on a field. As an adult, you could find your identity in your marriage or relationship, the success of your children, the, the behavior of your children. You, we could find our identity in, in so many things. And the reality is we, we make our identity wave like, like the ocean based on our understanding. But when we root in and we find our understanding in Jesus Christ, when we allow what he did at the cross to identify ourselves and become our primary identity, that's the heart of the gospel. Ephesians 1.15 starts this way. It says, For this reason. The Bible is really helpful. For this reason. So when you come to a for this reason, you have to appreciate that what he's articulating is an understanding of the previous 14 verses. For this reason, because in Jesus Christ you've received every spiritual blessing. We walked through that last week. For this reason. And we talked last week about how in Jesus Christ our, our past, our present, our future are secure. For this reason. You have an understanding that you were called before the beginning of time, which means God had a distinct love for you before you could mess up and before you could do anything noteworthy. God had a very distinct love for you, according to this book. And in the present time, should you not think that's significant enough for you, that God would love you before you were born 
and have an intentional purpose for you, he makes it really clear to you, for you to know that your present is also secure in him so that you would understand in the first 14 verses that you have been redeemed and that you've been purchased with the blood of the Son, that he gave you freedom and forgiveness of your sins, so that if you should think of your identity as a struggle in sin, as your ability to do this or not to do that, to appreciate that Jesus, having picked you out, loved you before you were born, in the middle of your current circumstances, has chosen to die for your sins. It says in Romans, while we were still sinners, God, Christ died for the ungodly. So in the midst of our sin-ridden lives, he dies for us so that our identity wouldn't be our sin or our struggles. And then he gives us a hope and a future. It tells us that. That he's given us a great hope, an inheritance. So he says for this reason in 115, you have to appreciate that's a very pregnant phrase. Having an understanding that your, your past, your present, and your future are secured in Jesus Christ. That it's not about your performance. He says this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now one of the things we've got to be clear about as we walk through Ephesians is this book was written to Christians. To people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So one of the early things we've got to at least accomplish or or get out there is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you looked at Jesus for salvation? Because if you have, then as we walk through these, all these promises are yours in Christ. If you've given him your life, you've believed into him for salvation, they are yours. However, if you have not If you do not trust Jesus Christ for salvation, these promises do not belong to you. So we have to be pretty clear about that. Because we could walk through a book of the Bible and make everyone feel really great about themselves, but if we haven't trusted Jesus, we've missed the main point. We're going to get into that in this passage. Because this passage, the very heart of this passage the very heart of getting rooted in Jesus is not only being in a relationship with him, but being in an ever-increasing relationship with him. But there's got to be a starting point. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I didn't wake up one day married to Pam. I, I didn't look across the bed one day and go, well, wow, strange woman. And a ring. This is crazy. Here I am. You know, I'm not married because my parents were married. And I'm not married because Pam's parents were married. I didn't inherit my marriage. It came to me. I made a decision. I want to pursue this woman. I entered into a relationship with this woman. An ever-increasing relationship with her. It's the same way with Jesus. There is a starting point to a relationship. Have you asked Jesus into your life and trusted him into salvation? And if so, are you in an ever-increasing relationship? When I married my wife, if I married her on that day and never talked to her again, my marriage wouldn't be very good, would it? 
Now, I have an ever-increasing relationship with her. It's the same thing with Jesus. This is Paul's prayer as he walks through this book. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving, th- I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says two things. Ever, for this reason, because of your identity is secure in Christ, I have not stopped giving thanks because you've trusted him. You've put your identity in Jesus. You're living out Christ. And you love the saints. Now see, this is actually really important. Do you have a love for the church and for your fellow brothers and sisters? Francis Schaeffer said the final apologetic for all believers, the proof that you really love Jesus, according to Francis Schaeffer, is do you love other Christians really well? See, Jesus in the upper room discourse in John 13 sat down with his disciples at the very end and said, I want to give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. What becomes extraordinarily different about that is it's no longer love one another expecting something in return. It's not, I want you to love other people because they're going to pay it back to you. In fact, he says, I want you to love other people as I would love them. And Jesus loved extraordinarily sacrificially so that his love for the believers was not so that they would return something back to him, but his love for the believers was such that he would fill them up and empower them to do other things. So when he says... I want you to love all the saints. I'm thankful that you have loved all the saints. Paul is pushing them towards this love that they're sacrificing for one another, that they're caring for one another, that that ought to be the mark of believers, that unbelievers ought to look at Christians and say, man, I want to join that because they love each other so well. They care about each other so thoroughly. When she walked through this, this group of women loved her so immensely. I, I just, what's going on over there? That's the love that ought to be true amongst Christians. Paul says, for this reason, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says, I haven't stopped thanking God for you. That's incredible. And 17, I keep asking. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul's praying for this church. I keep petitioning God over and over and over and over again. I'm petitioning God on your behalf. I'm going to the Father, the glorious Father, and I'm asking him to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Church, I want you to know that this is my regular prayer for us as a church. Regular. I I put this before the Lord regularly, that he would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. They're different terms, you have to understand, that that wisdom is having an insight into something that's true. And revelation is God revealing something about himself. 
It's God progressively, increasingly telling us more and more and more about him. So that the longer we're in a relationship with him, the more our relationship with him grows, the more we see a a long-standing character with God and we appreciate and see his faithfulness. He wants us to have the wisdom of, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know him better. And isn't it fascinating that Paul in this great prayer, in this, this great book, his big prayer, his big one, is that you would know Christ better. It's not that you do more. It's not that you'd attend more Bible studies. It's not that you'd go to more prayer groups. It's not that you'd invite Pastor Ben and his family over for dinner more. It's, there's no achievement here. It's that you would know Jesus Christ in an ever-increasing manner. That you'd grow in your knowledge of the Son. The fascinating thing about this book of Ephesians is if we walk through these early three chapters, there are no imperatives. It's not asking you to do anything yet. They're all indicatives. It's declaring things that are true about you. That God is declaring things that are true about you. And in this declaration place, Paul is praying that you would know God better. There's nothing here for you to do. It doesn't say do better, do more of this. He's just saying it's my heartbeat that you would know Jesus better. And then in order to describe that, so if you wonder what knowing Jesus better really looks like, Paul prays three very specific things. They're kind of a a parenthetical. If you want to know Jesus better, here are the three things, the three areas, if you will, that Paul prays that they would grow in their understanding and in their knowledge. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He continues to expand on this idea that you would know him better. I pray that God would open up your heart so that you would know more. To be enlightened. To be enlightened is the the reality that you come to a knowledge of something that's already true about you. This this doesn't tell you to acquire something. Paul's praying that you would come to a greater knowledge that these three things are true about you. So let's look and see what they are. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So that you would know the hope to which he has called you. So when Paul is praying that you would know Jesus Christ better, the first thing he prays is that you would know the hope to which he has called you. That you would have a great understanding of your hope that is put before you. To appreciate that Christian hope is different than other hope. So today when we get in the car and Pierce says, Dad, I hope we have pizza for dinner, you have to appreciate that the world's view of hope is not secure. Pierce's view of pizza is going to be relegated to whether or not I want us to have pizza or not. Because if I want to, then Pierce's hope might be secure. But if I don't want to, then we're going to eat something else. His hope is not secure because it's based on me. However, our hope in the Lord Jesus is utterly secure. There's not a variation. There's not a chance. It's an absolute. Paul wants us to know that their hope is an utter absolute. 
One of my favorite quotes comes from an Anglican priest named C.F.D. Mule. He's an Englishman, and he describes hope this way. He says, hope is faith on its tippy toes. And I love this description because it reminds me of my daughters. When Anna Kate wants to get, when she gets excited, my three-year-old, she starts getting up on her toes to look. That if hope is faith on her tippy toes, it's believing God is about to do something and being so excited about it that you're anxious and you're on your toes waiting to see what God's going to do. That that's our hope. That we would live with such a hope that God is so at work, regardless of our situations or circumstances, that we're on our tippy toes going, Jesus, you're about to do something. I don't know what it is, but you're going to deliver me. And I don't know what that means, but I can't wait to see you do it. The, faith, the hope is faith on its tippy toes. That we trust God so implicitly, so thoroughly that we know he's going to do something. That we're anxious to see the result. That we're anxious to see how it's going to work out. To know that our hope is secure in Jesus Christ. That he will sanctify you. He will glorify you. Philippians 1.6 says, And of this I am sure, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That in this life you will struggle with many things. And God may very well bring you delivery from the sins you struggle with now. And we need to live with an expectation and a hope that he will. And trust that God wants us to eradicate sin in our lives. And yet, we will be perfect on the day of Jesus Christ. When the Lord returns back to this earth the way that he came or the way that he went, we will be perfect and we are secure in that. That's not in question. We know Jesus is coming back. In fact, Paul in 1 Thessalonians encourages the church to regularly talk about its coming. Says it'd be the most encouraging thing to the church that we regularly be reminded that he's coming back for his own so that we wouldn't feel alone, so we wouldn't feel lonely, so we wouldn't wonder if we're just spinning our wheels. We'd be reminded of the second coming of our Lord. That's our great hope. Paul prays that we would know God better so that we would know the hope to which he has called us. And it's a tremendous hope. Secondly, Paul prays that we would know that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is moderately harder one to walk through. That we would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So let's get to a couple things. First, we know, according to the scripture, multiple places, God is absolutely rich. He's rich in glory. He's rich in grace. And in this particular passage, he's wanting to have us to have an understanding of the riches of his glorious inheritance. God's glorious inheritance. What is God's glorious inheritance? Wait for it. You. 
You're his inheritance. You are what he will receive in eternity. Do you appreciate that God glories in you? That God actually considers himself wealthy and more glorious because of you? You wonder if God values you at all? He considers you a glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this isn't an about you kind of passage. Christianity is not about me. One of the greatest things that frustrates me about the scriptures is when people read Bible verses and they say, for God so loved Ben that he sent his only begotten. No, it's, it doesn't say that. It says, for God so loved the world. God loves the world. We miss the fact that God loves us corporately. That we, make, we put way too much individualism in our faith. And yet in this particular spot, you have to appreciate that he has a glorious inheritance in his saints. That that God thinks you are his inheritance. You are the valuable thing that he's going to inherit in eternity, and it's glorious. You know how that starts to change us? It changes our view of hope. Because when you start to consider that we're a glorious inheritance for the Lord, when in Jesus Christ, knowing him, having surrendered our lives to him, you start to understand with hope that you, when you arrive in the heavenly realms upon your death, that God the Father is standing there looking at you as a glorious inheritance. Now, I've never met anyone who's received a glorious inheritance that was considered wealthy that was really that disappointed by it. Have you? If you're going to receive a glorious, rich inheritance, you'd be pretty excited. We need to appreciate, based on this passage and many others, that when you arrive in the heavenly realms as God's glorious inheritance, he's giddy that you're there. Have you considered the fact that God is giddy about you? That he loves you with this intense, enormous love. So that when you get to heaven, it's almost this anticipation that God the Father is going to be standing there saying, man, I'm so excited for you to be here. I, I, can't, I couldn't wait for you to get here. I sent my son for you. I'm so glad that you're here so that we could be here forever. And it's going to be glorious. One of the fair reasons I should point out that it's glorious is because it's going to be really evident based on our lives that we weren't worthy of it, that it was never about our worthiness, and that part of the gloriousness of it will be it'll glorify his son so much that his death was sufficient enough to cover all of our mistakes. It's not about us. It's about his son. And the gloriousness It's about him and his ability to forgive us. But he glories in us in that moment. So as you walk through this passage and you start to appreciate that Paul is praying that we know him in an ever-increasing fashion. And he wants us to appreciate that we have this tremendous hope looking forward. The hope to which he's called. And we appreciate that he's loving us as a great inheritance that from the beginning of us being called to the day we step into glory, he's got those covered again. So he comes to this third one. 
this third thing that he really wants us to know in an ever-increasing fashion so that we would know the son better. He says in 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That as Paul's praying that they would understand God, that they'd grown an ever-increasing knowledge of him, he wants them to understand their hope, he wants them to understand their inheritance, and he wants them to know this incomparably great power for us who believe. The power, he defines it. So we would know exactly what he's talking about. The power is like the working of his mighty strength. The God's strength, the power that God has, has been given to you who believe. What does it look like? Verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. God wants you to understand that you, who have given your lives to Jesus Christ, who have received the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, have tremendous power. We talked about it last week in Acts 1.8. That if you've given your life to Jesus, you are his witnesses, and you receive power to bear testimony unto him. The power of the Holy Spirit is within you. You wonder the extent of this power? You want to know what this power does? He tells you. It was exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. If you're walking right now, this morning, in a life of sin, and you feel dead, and you want to know if God could raise you to new life, the answer is absolutely. He did it with his son. And the same power, the same Holy Spirit is in you. So if there's a single area in your life that you feel dead or disconnected, and you want to know if regeneration is possible, the answer is absolutely. Paul's great hope is that we don't connect with this power. What keeps marginal Christians marginal is we walk with a misunderstanding of who God is and what his word declares about us. As we walk through this, we're trying to root you in the gospel so that you understand what God has declared about you, so that you'll live the life that God has declared for you to live. See, we haven't told you to do anything yet. But Paul's wanting you to know this hope that you have and that your eternity is secure and that you walk with power because of the Holy Spirit, this power that raised his son from the dead. So there's no part of our lives he can't resurrect. There's no aspect of us he can't absolutely regenerate. And he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. My 12-year-old voice is coming fast, by the way. If you wonder about his resurrection power, God didn't just resurrect his son from the dead and leave him on the earth. He took him to heaven. And it wasn't just heaven. He put Jesus Christ in his right hand in the heavenly realms. And he gets emphatic about that. He gets emphatic about this power thing to continue on to say, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. 
So you have to ask the question, what do you believe about the power that you have in Jesus Christ? Because it wasn't just a power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that put Jesus over everything. Rule and authority, power and dominion. There is nothing that suppressed the power of Jesus. Nothing. Every title that could be given. Nothing ever would. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God exalted his son and did so purposefully and did so meaningfully. But as we walk through this passage, as Paul is praying for his church, praying for this Ephesians church that he planted, he says, I don't ever want to stop praying for you guys. I want to pray for you all the time. And I want to pray that you would know Jesus really well. In fact, I want to pray that you know him better. And I want to pray that you will know him in an ever-increasing fashion. And I want to pray that your hope is increased. I want to pray that your security in him is increased. That you'd come to a better understanding of the hope that you have. The security in Jesus Christ that you have. I want to keep praying that for you. And I want to keep praying for you that you come to a better, better understanding. That you're his glorious inheritance. That as you walk around and wonder, does God even care about me? That you know in an ever-increasing way, God really values and treasures me. God loves me intensely. By the way, he'll make that epically clear in chapter 3. He wants me to grow in my understanding of God's inheritance in me. And he wants them to grow in their knowledge of him and the understanding of the power that they have to live. So as you try to engage a coworker, and you can't muster up the words to say, or you say, I just don't have the patience to deal with this person today, the right answer is absolutely. You do not have the patience to deal with this guy today. Nobody else would either. But you have a power. And it's not a small power. It's the power that raised God from the dead and set him on the right hand of God the Father. You have a power to love people. Just to say a simple prayer and say, Holy Spirit, would you give me the power to bear witness and testimony to your great glory so that you can love a person in your life that's really hard to love? If you've got friends around you and you're trying to reach out to them, you're trying to engage them and you're not sure what to say or how to love them or how to walk into their life, if the people around you are in circumstances and you don't know anything about it, it's easier just to walk away. It's easier to not say anything. It's easier to separate. But no, the love of Jesus compels us to walk into those situations and circumstances and say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. I don't know what to say. I have no clue what to do in this situation. But I want to move towards somebody because I want to understand that that's God's desire is to move towards people who are in tragedy. I want to be part of your work. I I want to engage these people who are going through horrific challenges or even really normal ones. 
See, we often wonder, how do we lead the Christian life? How do we engage people? How do we do this? How do we do that? And the answer Paul prays for us is we just start walking with an increased knowledge of who we are. He doesn't say try harder. He doesn't say do more. He doesn't say make a checklist and, and make sure you do these four things every day and I'll love you and bless you. Paul prays that you would come to a greater understanding of who you are, of what scriptures revealed to you, that having walked through a whole series on faith all summer long, that we just take God at his word and we believe that it's true. So when God says, I love you, I value you, you're mine, we go, okay, I'm his. He loves me, I get that, I'll take it. I'll walk with it. As he closes this first chapter, he just wants you to know. He prays for you to come to a greater understanding of who you are in him, of the hope that you have, of his inheritance, that he treasures you, and that you have tremendous power. Next week, we're walking into chapter two to appreciate the fullness of grace. That's going to be a great week. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so thankful for your work at the cross. That the nature of our faith is not that we do more. It's to appreciate that everything you did at the cross was sufficient. It was sufficient for my sin was sufficient for my shortcomings. It was sufficient for my failures. It was sufficient for the things I hate about myself. It was sufficient for the things that I love about myself. There's no aspect of the cross that was deficient in any way. So, Father, as a group, as a corporate body, I pray, Father, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know you more. And as we seek to know you more, that you'd give us an ever-increasing understanding of the hope that you've given us, an ever-increasing understanding of the great inheritance that we are to you, how much you treasure us. And God, that you would give us a greater understanding of the power we have to live by. We so limit ourselves, God, but you're not limited by anything. You don't ask us to do it out of our strength. You ask us to do it out of yours. So, Father, make us tremendous stewards of your power that we could love people really well because you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.